and welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we are here again to talk, as we always do, about life, the universe, and everything from a Catholic perspective. And today, I have got a super cool uh, guest on this podcast. It is none other than Brother Guy Consolmagno, who is the director of the Vatican Observatory and a guy who will baptize aliens if he gets the chance. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but only if they ask. Only if they ask, uh, yes. And we are uh, – so I am here in Seattle, and I am speaking to him not in Phoenix, definitely not Phoenix. Boo, Phoenix. It's uh, Tucson. He is, he is in <laughs> Tucson, Arizona, which is way better than Phoenix. <laughs> Hello, welcome, welcome to well, Connecting the Dots. Now that you've made that clear, I'll stay on the show. Yeah, you never want to confuse the two. Okay. Uh, I, I grew up in Michigan, and the rivalry between Michigan and Michigan State is like the rivalry between Washington and Washington State or Arizona and Arizona State. Okay. Actually, I actually did my doctoral work at the University of Arizona, so of course I can't be confused with Arizona State, which is that okay. place up the road. So you're actually doctor brother. Guy I am. Or brother, yeah. is it brother doctor? Brother doctor. Yeah, but it, it, since I never use either, uh, it's not true. Actually, I use the brother a lot more because there are lots of doctors around, but not nearly as many brothers as they used to be. It's true. Well, you know, the whole, and I think this is something that's, uh, you know, well worth discussing, the whole uh, uh, Vatican observatory director career track is not, it's not one that's commonly pursued in <laughs> astronomy circles. So, Certainly I did not pursue it, and that's part of the joy of it. So one wonders, okay, how did you wind up doing what you're doing? Um, there's a, a wonderful phrase in Jesuit spirituality, of that, not the, the formal type, but the informal, that says God writes straight with crooked lines. Okay. And uh, that was certainly a crooked path that brought me here. I, I went to Jesuit High School in Detroit. That's where I grew up. Okay. And I uh, had no idea what I wanted to do after that because, you know, I was a baby boom kid and all smart little boys were going to be scientists. But the Jesuits told me that Latin and Greek and classics was where it was at. Okay. And while I learned astronomy from my dad, my dad was a writer. He was a speech writer and a journalist and a PR guy. Okay. So I had no idea what I wanted to do. I went off to Boston College because it was in Boston where my dad was from. Okay. And it was uh, a Jesuit school. And I majored in history because I thought history is everything. And I, you know, that was, that was the closest I could find to the checkbox for all of the above. Okay. And I hated the freshman dorms because all the people wanted to do there was drink and I wanted to be a nerd. Okay. So I decided to join the Jesuits, become a priest to get away from all these, uh, guys who are just a pain in the neck. <laughs> so the Jesuits, you know, said you should pray about this. I'm 18. Who prays? Right. And uh, and they said, after I prayed, you know, I'm waiting for the voice in the ceiling saying, we're desperate. We'll take anybody. Okay. But instead, what I got was a little voice in the back of my head saying, what kind of job is this you're lining up to? To be a priest? What does a priest do for a living? Like deals with people with problems, just like the guys in your dorm you're trying to get away from. <laughs> it's terrible, I think. You're a nerd. <laughs> so that's how okay. I didn't become a Jesuit priest. Okay. That's... And instead, I was, you know, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say that's. I, I was just thinking. I mean, if you, if your goal was to get away from annoying people, going deeper into the Catholic Church seems like a bad. Oh yeah, route to go. You know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but. But instead, it was, you know, also what I didn't realize was Jesuit spirituality. Where are you happy? Where is God calling you? And my best friend was at MIT, and they had weekend movies and pinball machines and tunnels you could explore at midnight, cool things going on, Mm -hmm. and the world's largest collection of science fiction, which they still have. Okay. So I thought, well, I'll transfer there and tell them I'm going to be a science journalist. Okay. Well, that was the flavor of the month that month, so they immediately took me. I started as a sophomore in Earth and Planetary Science, which I, again, chose on a total whim. I had no idea it was geology. But uh, (laughs) it turns out that they have these rocks from space, which is where you get the planetary part, called meteorites. Right. And the idea you can actually hold a meteorite in your hand, touch outer space, that was thrilling. Okay. In addition... There was, a, there was a very charismatic professor who I just, you know, I follow him anywhere. So, who turns out actually to have been a Mormon. What did I know? Okay. I did not become a Mormon. Uh, but it meant that he was comfortable with people who would have interesting questions about how uh, the universe works and more than just what's the right equation to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, he's my role model. Well, that's, that's really interesting. The... One of the uh, best science fiction writers uh, that I've encountered is uh, another Mormon named uh, Orson Scott Card. Right. uh, Who did a a terrific – he did an essay uh, a few years ago uh, basically where he talked about the fact that uh, the only place where you can still in popular culture uh, just absolutely go to town – with theological speculation is in science fiction mm-hmm. and, and fantasy. You're not allowed to do it anywhere else, but in science fiction and fantasy, you're, that's all you're doing is theological speculation <laughs> about things all the time. And, right. he said, you know, so you can get away, you know, with murder in <laughs> science fiction. To- sure. You, can, you yeah. can get away with murder in science fiction talking about we, – we have a mutual friend, um, uh, Michael Flynn. Oh, yeah. Uh, who wrote one of the finest, I think, one of the finest uh, uh, science fiction uh, theological speculation novels ever written called Eiffelheim. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a fantastic piece of work. It'll break your heart at the same time. And it's not the only science fiction that does that, and it's not the only science sure. fiction writer that does that. Oh, uh, I'll do it. Oh, they all do it. But yeah. I was at a, at a convention once where the challenge for the panelists was to uh, sum up a science fiction novel in a tweet, 140 characters back then. Okay. So Eiffelheim, I tweeted as aliens come to Earth in, in medieval, medieval Earth, encounter the plague, everybody dies. Yes. <laughs> That's and true. of course, that's different from Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, where people go back into the past, encounter the plague, and everybody dies. Uh-huh. Yep. And, of course, Connie Willis is uh, – she's not Catholic. She's uh, Episcopal, but, again, writes from a strongly theological point of view. Right. Uh, most of my favorite writers do because you've got to have a theology to start with right. before you can start playing with theology, just yeah. as you have to have science before you can do science fiction. Right. Uh, there's a there's – a... Uh, an interesting book that came out uh, was uh, I, f- I forget the name of the author Mary. 
A Mary Dory or Russell. That's what I'm thinking. The Sparrow. The Sparrow. Uh, I hated that book. <laughs> but it's but it's it's once again uh, what you're looking mm-hmm. at is is yeah. basically theological speculation. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wrote it actually. She wrote it in response to all the kerfuffle about the 500th anniversary of uh, Columbus. Right. Uh, and and so she's just you know it's it's basically transposing the kinds of problems that uh, you grapple with uh, when the when uh, Europe came to the New World, except it's now mm-hmm. it's on another planet. You know. Right. Uh, but it's the and same it, kind of thing. And, uh, and it was funny because I complained about that book. Ah, oh, she doesn't know the Jesuits. Turns out she knows the Jesuits really well. Her advisor was a Jesuit friend of mine. Okay. Said, oh, she doesn't know science fiction. Her science fiction advisor was another friend of mine. <laughs> and then I said, oh, she's much too serious. And both of these friends say, no, she's got a wicked sense of humor. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> she did her homework. She wrote a book that many, many people love. It just didn't work for me. Yep. And, and that's fine. That's that. fine. Yeah, yeah I, it's just, it's it's another example. And, and there's there's tons. It really, it's it's very hard to go anywhere in the science fiction world uh, and not see uh, uh, Ultimately, people are grappling with these these theological questions, yeah. theological and, and moral mm-hmm. questions. And, and, uh, and the good ones do it well and the bad ones do it badly. And yeah. by well or badly, I don't mean whether I agree with them or not. Um, you take take the uh, that that uh, infamous um, British writer who sort of wrote the anti Narnia books. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. 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 Philip, uh, Philip Pullman. Philip Pullman. And yet he and, and he gets a lot of the fantasy wrong because the powers that they have in one book he forgets and they don't have in the next book things like right. that. But and it's it's really uh, I mean he has two enemies and no good guys and his enemies on the one hand were the church people well that's me and on the other hand are the scientists well that's also me. <laughs> and so it's wonderful to be portrayed as an enemy. But right. at the end of the series, to give you a spoiler. Um, our heroes grow old, have miserable lives, and die. The end. <laughs> yeah. And, and give, given his philosophy, that's exactly right. You know, he's well, he's true to what he was writing. Yeah. Well, and it's it's one of those things where you know those stories in particular were so it's it's ironic, really. You know, because he uh, he hated Lewis for being uh, what he saw as too agenda driven. And, and by the way, you can find a similar complaint about Lewis from Lewis's friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, who also didn't like the Narnia books, you know. Uh, and, of course, who's more agenda-driven than uh, than Pullman? Uh, but, you know, at the same time, uh, uh, Pullman, in response, writes books that are so agenda-driven yeah. that it's like, okay, I, was, I get the message. <laughs> I was invited once to speak to a group of people in Oxford. And I thought, oh, this is going to be wonderful. And so I come, it was a wonderful group, and it was a a fun talk, and I was happy to talk to all of them. But it was held not in Oxford, but in a Holiday Inn north of Oxford on a traffic circle where you could walk across the traffic circle to a gas station in a Burger King. (laughs) And I'm thinking, what a miserable... So... So I call up a friend of mine who lives in, you know, in Headington, which is actually where Lewis lived, uh-huh. and I uh, spent the rest of the weekend. He picks me up at this traffic circle and he says, you realize the center of the traffic circle is one of the portals in the Philip Pullman book. 
which he chose as being, you know, the most unexceptional, miserable spot in <laughs> That's great. That's terrific. Well, I, I wanted to. I wanted to. Uh, uh, you uh, gave an interview a few years ago. Well, go ahead. Right. Well, you, you realize I only got as far as how I got to be a scientist. Oh, right. Okay. I got to be at the Vatican Observatory. Oh, oh I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Keep going. You know, we, 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 could, we could go for hours trying yeah. to figure out the rest of the uh, – I bounced around as a scientist, got my doctorate at Arizona, was a postdoc at MIT, um, decided science was worthless, joined the Peace Corps. Okay. Something worthwhile. And everybody in the little villages in the Peace Corps wanted to know about astronomy and look through my telescope and find out what the space program was doing. Okay. Which made me realize maybe astronomy isn't useless. This, this is what people do because they're hungry for more than just food. Right. Yes. So I came back and got a job teaching at a little college in Pennsylvania, Lafayette College. Okay. Wonderful place. And I was never so happy as I had been teaching there. Okay. But there was still something missing. And a couple of friends of mine from my Peace Corps days were getting married, and I was really happy for them. And it suddenly hit me, and I'm in my mid-30s by this point. It hit me that I was happy for them, but that wasn't what I wanted. What I wanted was to teach in a small school, but to stand for something bigger than just myself and my own career like we did in the Peace Corps. Right. And, and I didn't want to be married. Um, you know, happy for them, but... I, I dated, and it was, you know, the happiest moments of all my dating experiences when we would sign, you know, look at each other and say, let's just be good friends. <laughs> okay. You know, which is a sign that maybe this was, you know, I, I, I picked the interesting ones, and interesting is not always what you want to, you know, live with for the rest right. of your life. Right. Well, I thought if I joined the Jesuits, uh, you know, I could teach at a Jesuit university, but I'd already had that you're not going to be a priest thing. Okay. And then I remembered that Jesuits have brothers, and brothers don't do public, uh, you know, religious leadership. They don't lead prayers. They don't hear confessions. They do do don't do all that kind of stuff that I'm terrible at. Uh huh. But they can be the the technicians, the cooks, the artists, even the scientists. Okay. Well, you know, when you when you go when you go through a vocation thing. The important thing is to ask your friends, am I crazy or what? And the most <laughs> uniform response I got, whether they're atheists or believers, younger than me, older than me, you know, women I dated, women who I double dated with when I was in high school, they all agreed that this was no, not only obvious for me, but those of my friends who had known me in high school said, we could have told you that in high school. <laughs> you know, which is not what you wanted to hear from the girl who you took to the senior prom. <laughs> but she was right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I joined the Jesuits, and for the first time, I don't just feel happy. I feel content that this is where I belong. Okay. And, and it took me 20 years to get to the place where I would belong there, but I did belong. And poverty, I, I, I could happily live without stuff. I'd... You know, was never in needy. My, my parents are pretty comfortable, so I can live without stuff. Uh huh. And twenty years of the dating world made chastity look like a great idea. Uh huh. But that obedience thing, I was not prepared for. Okay. And in the Jesuits, obedience specifically means obedience for mission. They can mission you wherever you want to go. So when I started asking, okay, what's the university where you're going to send me? 
They said, we're not sending you to the university. We're sending you to Rome to join the Vatican Observatory. You're going to have to look at that boring Italian scenery and eat that terrible Italian food. Mm. And oh, yes, the Vatican Observatory is a collection of 1,100 meteorites that needs a curator. Did I tell you about meteorites? About how they thrilled me? About how I got into the field for meteorites in the first place? Uh huh. So under obedience, I had to do that. Uh-huh. And I happily was at the observatory for more than 20 years. Uh, they, have, they, they started a routine where the directors would have a 10-year, a, a five-year term renewable because the previous director had been in for nearly 30 years and he was just dying to get out. And you really wanted to retire. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody wants jobs that are for life anymore, and I can't blame them. Mm-hmm. So the old director was retiring, and I knew exactly who they were going to choose. This younger guy was a great administrator and enthusiastic and a wonderful speaker. So they chose me instead. Okay. I had nothing to do with it. And and here's the thing. Under obedience, you're obedient to um, your provincial unless you're assigned to the international delegation where I was, at which point you're obedient to Father General. Okay. And who's the one person who can overrule Father General is the Pope. But my appointment comes from the Pope. <laughs> so, so there's nobody left to appeal to. <laughs> now, was it Benedict that, that appointed you? Or, or? No, it, it, was, it was Francis. It was Francis. It was only three years ago. Yeah. Another Jesuit. <laughs> Another Jesuit, right. <laughs> Who actually had been friends and, and, and interviewed the previous director, Jose Funes, who was also an Argentinian. Okay. And they knew each other back from, you know, before either of them had gone to Rome. Okay. So so he knows us very – he had had lunch with us. He knew us quite well. Okay. So there's no getting out of it. So, but does, there was no plot. <laughs> does, so does, like, Francis now and then, you know, walk over – you know, from the from the papal palace and say, so, you know, what's going on? I mean, <laughs> uh, actually, no, <laughs> oh, for a couple of good okay. reasons. For one, uh, he doesn't live in the summer palace anymore. Oh, he doesn't okay. take vacations there. And they've turned the summer palace into a museum so that rather than having a whole lot of tourists come for two months in the summer, they've got a steady, steady stream of tourists coming to visit the Papal Palace and Castel Gandolfo and the gardens, which used to be closed off and now tourists can see them. It's really wonderful. It's a way of, you know, sharing the beauty of this place okay. with people who want to see it. And they pay a hefty fee, which is actually, you know, part of the fees that keeps the Vatican Observatory going. So I can't complain about that either. Okay, cool, cool. So uh, I, I'm trying to picture, I mean, I've got uh, my, my, image in my mind uh, is that the Vatican Observatory is like some, I don't know, 15th century facility with a brass telescope that was built by Leonardo da Vinci. We didn't build telescopes. Uh, Okay, you know, or or Galileo, you know, before... uh, Well, it it kind of is and kind of isn't. Okay. There's been an observatory of one sort or another at the Roman College, which was run by the Jesuits, going back to Christopher Clavius and the reform of the calendar in the 1580s. Okay. And these were the guys who, you know, debated with Galileo. Right. And in some cases, their science was better than Galileo's. Galileo uh-huh. was right, but often for the wrong reasons. Okay. And on and off, their Jesuits doing that until 
the greatest Jesuit astronomer was a fellow named Angelo Secchi, who happened to do all of his work. He was the first guy to look at Mars and see features and start naming them. He was the first guy to take spectra of stars and classify them and actually ask, what are they, rather than just where are they? Okay. But that was during the unification of Italy. And uh, after he died, the Italian government confiscated his observatory. And Italy was, you know, taken all of the papal states except the area just around St. Peter's. Okay. So Pope Leo XIII in 1891 figures he's going to do two things with one move. He will found a national observatory, the Vatican Observatory, and any nation that recognizes the Vatican Observatory is de facto recognizing the Vatican as a nation, which is oh. what they're, you know, they're trying to really get that. But also, it's the end of the 19th century where people are beginning the great mythology that church and science are opposed to each other. Right. It doesn't go back to Galileo. It's a political thing, an anti-church political thing from the end of the 19th century. Right. In America, it's tied up with the anti-immigrant movement. We've got to keep those people with vowels at the end of their names out of the country. You know? Right. <laughs> they, they saw my great-grandfather, obviously. Right, right. And, Sacco and Vanzetti, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and all of the incredible anti-Italian prejudice that you know, right. we still live with to this day. Right. So that was why they had an observatory. And the first project they were involved in was to join up in an international group, 18 nations, and the Vatican was one of the nations, to photograph the sky. And we all got to have identical telescopes. Well, the telescope that they bought in 1891, we've just restored, and it's back in working shape, and you could look through it. Okay. You know, you go to the gardens, and, and you, you pay for a special tour. You can actually use this 1891 telescope. Cool. But you can't use science with 1891 telescopes anymore. Right, right. So about the 1980s, when light pollution made all of our other telescopes are a little bit newer than that, sort of useless in Rome. You can't see anything with the city lights. Right. In, in the 1990s, we built a telescope in Arizona in conjunction with the University of Arizona. Okay. It's called the Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope. It's on a mountaintop in a really remote part of Arizona, practically what, in New Mexico. Would that be and near we use. Would that be near Tucson somewhere by any chance? Well, it's, you know, Tucson is the largest uh, – <laughs> city nearby okay. and that's where the university is but you got to remember you don't live at the telescope right there's a bunch of us who want to use it and you spend a week at the telescope and then three months trying to reduce the data in three more months figuring out what do i do next and then you get another week at the telescope okay so we take turns driving up the four hours uh this morning i saw jean-baptiste kikwaya who's one of the jesuits in our group who's just driven up the mountain to spend his week there okay very cool. And the rest of the time, we live at the university, and we've got offices at the university, and we teach at the university. This this just sounds like a nerd's paradise. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, it's, you know, even it's even better than you think, because back in the days when I was living off NASA grants, you know, I could only do the research that NASA would pay for, and I'd better have results after three years. Now... I can do whatever research I think is interesting. And if it takes 10 years to come up with a result, nobody cares as long as I'm showing results and showing progress. And that means that the work we do at the Vatican Observatory is different 
from the work that's done at other observatories in this sense. We do long-term survey projects that provide the data for the other people. We collaborate with the rest of the astronomy world, but we don't duplicate what they do. We do what they can't. Okay. Very cool. That is that is so cool. I uh, I, I I I love you know the church's history of engagement with the sciences, uh, and I'm one of those people that agrees with you that I think one of the great tragedies of the late 19th century was the was the, of the, many. The, the, the many tragedies, but one of them was the the uh, the myth that arose that you know the church is somehow afraid of the sciences, and the church, I mean. <laughs> It's a Catholic tradition that gave us the sciences, you know. Well, here's a, here's a quiz for you. Yeah. There are two famous scientists who are Catholics whose name you can find in every church in America. Okay. Devout, active, I mean, really active Catholics. Ampere and Volta. <laughs> a place that has amps and volts. Ampere, okay. Ampere was a great buddy with the guy who founded, I think, the, the DeSalle Order, and Volta was a very devout Italian Catholic. Okay. I did not know that. That's interesting. And this happens over and over and over again. There are so many scientists who you have heard of, right. scientists who have made a difference, who have some connection with the church. In some cases, it, it's uh, you know a love-hate relationship, which mm -hmm. is true of a lot of Catholics. Mm -hmm. uh, but in some cases, they're super devout. And in some cases, they sort of came to the church late in life, kind of like Oscar Wilde. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's just fascinating. Do you know John Farrell? Oh, yes. Very well. Yeah. Okay. I, I've he had wrote, him a... He wrote a wonderful book about uh, uh, Lemaitre. Yes, exactly. You, you uh, know who Lemaitre was. Yes. Tell the folks who Lemaitre was. I will tell the folks who Lemaitre was. Uh, uh, Monsignor. Monsignor. He was, he was a Jesuit too, right? No. No? He hated being called a Jesuit. Oh, okay. I um, thought he was a Jesuit. Okay. No, no, he was a diocesan priest. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, Monsignor Georges Lemaitre was a Belgian uh, priest, and he is the guy who gave you the Big Bang theory, although he didn't call well, it. He the happened Big to Bang have theory. two doctorates. He had a doctorate in mathematics and a doctorate in astrophysics. Right, and uh, he came along at just the right time when uh, uh, the 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 sciences had figured out for the first time for most of history of course uh, we didn't have the instrumentation to be able to tell what was going on out there the stars were just points of light who knew what they were you know and uh, but eventually we began to realize that the universe was not static it wasn't just it hadn't always been there uh, that it was in motion and that it was expanding and and what Lemaitre did was look at that and realize well if that's the case then if you run the film backwards uh, that means Maybe you get a beginning yeah you get a beginning that means that you know if the universe is expanding then there was a time when all the matter in the universe uh, was crammed into a single spot. If you can it's believe that. It's not all the matter. It's all of space-time itself. Right. This Everything. Is the weird thing. Everything. So the, the space between the galaxies is, is what's... Is, and he knew this. Actually, he worked this out before Hubble observed the relationship between expansion and distance. Really? But after, but after De Sitter had seen that there was expansion. Okay. But Hubble worked out the relationship. And that freaked a lot of people out at the time. 
because well for a number of reasons first of all this is a priest doing this work and you know if if we listen to what he's saying this sounds a lot like you know who <laughs> and that and Lemaitre. oh Lemaitre was really, yeah Lemaitre was really strong to insist that that's not what he was doing right uh, even when pope pius the 12th made mention of this Lemaitre went to him and said, be sure you don't conflate the Big Bang with Genesis. Right. Exactly because, right. Because maybe I'm wrong. It's science. You know, science is only being wrong. In a thousand years, we'll have a completely different set of questions, much less different answers. Right. Exactly. But beyond uh, that, if, if creation occurs, like, like in, uh, what does it say in Genesis? In the beginning, God, God's already there. God's already there before right. there is space and time, right. which means creation occurs by a supernatural, outside of nature God. Right. And therefore, if it's at all time, creation's happening right now. Yes, that is, that is a, a hugely important point that a lot of people forget, that creation is not something that happened, you know, 13.5 billion years ago, and that was creation. Creation's going on right now. Uh, this, uh, there, there, there's a famous uh, book by Stephen Hawking, on um, you know he where, who who says famously I don't believe in philosophy when a statement like that is philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But but he also says ah, I know what caused the Big Bang. It's a quantum fluctuation in the space-time continuum that gives us gravity. That those same sorts of fluctuations are what we call gravity. Right. So the Big Bang occurs because there is a thing called gravity, and therefore we don't need God. No, 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 no. Watch, watch the, the, the logical <laughs> fallacy here. He's defining God as the thing that starts the Big Bang. And then he says gravity is the thing that starts the Big Bang. Logically, it's not that there is no God, but that God must be gravity, right? right. In his universe. Right. Maybe that's why he thinks Catholics celebrate Mass. <laughs> <laughs> there are those who have had too much physics who will get the pun, and those who haven't will look, you know, it's kind of puzzle like that. was supposed uh, to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. I am uh, shameless. I'm a Jesuit. You know uh, oh, okay, okay. But, um, uh, so, yeah, it, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that uh, – I, I talked about this with, with John Farrell. Was that, you know, you'll get – uh, and I find now that this is leaching into the church as well. There's this kind of fundamentalist way uh, of reading the faith that says, yeah. you know, evolution is bad. Uh, and it's because I heard that on the radio someplace. Yeah, it's a menace to the the faith somehow. And it's like we don't, as Catholics, we don't have to worry about evolution. Gregor uh, Mendel was a monk. Give me a break. Exactly. Well, and what it, the the funny thing is that I, I I run into a lot of times is the same people uh, who are worried about evolution as somehow being a threat to the faith, but are sensitive to you know charges that uh, uh, the the Catholic Church is anti-science will often point to Monsignor Lemaitre. And say, see, Catholic priest, you know, and right. he was a scientist. Well, you know, what Lemaitre <laughs> is doing is just writing the evolutionary narrative in very, very large print. 
there's a whole <laughs> movement called Big History that even starts that. Yes, and, and because what Lemaitre is doing is positing an evolutionary picture of right. the entire universe, not just this little tiny phenomenon called terrestrial biology. You know, this and, and what's, going on a one more. little tiny speck of dust, you know. And the people who were opposed to him were the atheists. Yes. Which is the great. Now, here's another wonderful story that, that uh, um, John mentions in his book. Lemaitre and Fred Hoyle finally meet. Now, Fred Hoyle is the British atheist who's on the BBC and makes fun of Lemaitre's theory by right. calling it that Big Bang Theory. Right. The two of them meet. They're fascinated in all the same things. They have all sorts of friends in common because Lemaitre had been uh, a, a postdoctoral fellow under um, Eddington at Cambridge. So he's you know fluent in English. Mm -hmm. They meet at this meeting at the Vatican, which is studying stellar population. Well, still stellar population. The idea that there are different populations of stars and older stars are different from younger stars, which everybody agrees now, was mm -hmm. incredibly controversial in 1957, 58. Mm -hmm. These two guys meet, and they become best friends. Interesting. And they drive. They go on vacation together. Uh, uh, Hubble and or Hoyle and his wife and Lemaitre. They go on vacation through Switzerland, and because we're all under the same sky, we're all fascinated by the same things. We can have disagreements, and they're good disagreements because they make our theories better. Mm -hmm. Hoyle came up with an alternative theory to explain the expansion of the universe without a Big Bang, and it was testable, and when it failed the test, he admitted it. He's a great scientist. Yeah, that's what you do. You know, that's what an honest scientist does, and, right. and, or what an honest person does. I mean, it's just, you know, and uh, so you, I, I love that the, the faith doesn't have to be afraid of any of that. If, you're, if your faith is afraid of the truth, you have no faith in your faith. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and you know, one of, the, one of the nice things is that, is that Lemaitre was able to live long enough to see his theory proven by the, by yeah. the guys at Bell Labs. That's no, no, a daring just word. You don't want to say proven, but, but strongly well, okay. supported. Strongly supported. Because, yeah. you know, a thousand years from now, that theory is – a thousand years from now, Euclid's mathematical proofs will still be valid. Right. But all of the science that I do will look ridiculous. Science doesn't prove the same way that mathematics does. Right, right. And uh, just some background so people know, what happened was uh, in 1965, some guys who were not interested in the Big Bang, they were just like a couple of tech guys working for Bell Labs, uh, and they were they were they were trying to account for a problem that they had uh uh with their with their uh with their technology it kept picking up this background hiss this kind of radio hiss uh that they couldn't figure out where it was coming from is this coming from you know there there is this coming from uh you know the city nearby is this you know what's what's making this this uh static hiss in our um in our technology and they finally realized it's coming from everywhere because what they were hearing was the echoes of the big bang which uh, had been predicted by a fellow named john dickey up the road from them at princeton and dickey never thought the I, I don't know if he ever thought they'd be able to hear it but you know these guys down the road heard it 
Yeah, yeah. And so they wound up, you know, winning winning the Nobel Prize for that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's got to be a weird, you know, uh, we were just, mm-hmm. we weren't really looking for the the big bang, right? <laughs> we were but just you have to, to be fix aware enough of what's going on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, to tie all of this together, I'll be, I mentioned that I know John Farrell, I know Mike Flynn. We all met at a science fiction convention <laughs> in Boston a few years ago. We were actually on a panel together about medieval science. And it's someplace on YouTube. I'm, you'd have to be a pretty good with the other your Google flu to be able to find it. But okay. if you look on the internet, you can see the three of us talking about medieval science. Oh, that would be fun. Maybe I'll go find it that. It really is. I'll stick it up on my blog. Well, speaking of which, uh, speaking of which, you, uh, um, I mean, one of the one of the things that uh, increasingly, you know, it has been a, a phenomenon in our culture is the way in which the sciences and science fiction and fantasy have kind of created a feedback loop. Uh, you know, uh, science fiction writers, fantasy writers speculate about things, and sometimes scientists go, "That's that's an interesting question," you know. And, and similarly, you know, so you get, for example, just to give a, a very trivial example, the reason your uh, a lot of cell phones look like communicators in Star Trek is because they were designed to look like communicators in Star Trek, you know. <laughs> The, the, the guys that first designed uh, cell phones thought that's kind of a cool look, you know. Well, I'll, I'll give you another kind of small but exactly analogous uh, example. 1979, the Voyager spacecraft goes past Jupiter, has these marvelous images of the moon Io, which is pronounced Io, not Io, and I'll fight to the death over that. But okay. I know okay. I'm in a minority. Ooh, at least in the English speakers. I've, I've always said as I. As long as you say you can say EO, you can say IO. The one thing you shouldn't say is ten. Okay. I heard a news news reporter saying Jupiter's moon ten has been shown to have volcanoes. <laughs> well, or you know, also don't say E I E I O either. That's um, right. So anyway, they've got these volcanoes. Big debate as to what's powering them. And I had done some work on the chemistry of meteorites and knew what the meteorites are made out of. And when I'm not doing this work. I'm reading science fiction. And there was a book by Hal Clement called Ice World. And I've been interested in the icy moon. So, oh, I got to read this book. Well, the ice world to him was planet Earth, where the atmosphere of our aliens who breathe sulfur, Earth is so cold that sulfur becomes an ice, becomes a solid. And I go, oh, really? And he describes in the book how the, the boiling point of sulfur is actually relatively low. Oh, really? Just about the temperature of these volcanoes. Oh, really? Which are spewing out all of this yellow stuff. They go, uh-huh. which I'm finding in the meteors. I write a paper in science on sulfur volcanoes on EO. And I actually, in the acknowledgments, acknowledge Harry Stubbs, who is the, the real name of the writer, Hal Clement. Really? I got the idea from reading his science fiction book. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, and and that, you know, that's that's been one of the 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 interesting uh, uh, ways in which this sort of cross fertilization happens. Yeah. And so people, you know, speculate about these things, and uh, th- that very naturally bleeds into theological speculation. You know, one of the things that a, a priest friend of mine remarked on. Uh, he said, you know, that it's the function of the magisterium 
to just, you know, keep things on track. <laughs> <laughs> And kind of, you know, and one of the things that lay people, especially lay people that are very concerned about orthodoxy, spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about the rules and coloring inside the lines and making sure that, you know, nobody gets too crazy. Uh, and meanwhile, the job of a theologian is to, like, just go nuts sometimes <laughs> just you know, what about this crazy possibility you know which yeah. makes people who are very concerned about coloring inside the lines very nervous <laughs> right well this reminds me of something we're, i don't know when this will be broadcast but we're recording it the day before valentine's day which is also the day before ash wednesday right and it's the you know the year 2018 where ash wednesday is on valentine's day and easter is on april fool's day as in do. Yeah. But uh, there's a wonderful connection between the two, uh, church rules and Valentine's Day. Okay. Many years ago, back when I was a postdoc living in Boston, uh, the guy I was sharing an apartment with was madly in love with a local Boston woman named Masha. Masha, with a thick Boston accent. Okay. And he came to me one day to just, I just bought Masha a dozen roses. You know, if this doesn't do it, nothing will. And nothing would because she wasn't interested. Okay. A year later, he meets the woman he eventually is going to marry. And so 35 plus years they've been married. They're very happy together. And I'm sure he's bought his wife roses many times. Mm -hmm. The difference is this. You don't buy roses to earn somebody's love. You buy roses to show your love. Right. You don't follow the rules that God gives us so that God has to give you the pass key to the, the nightclub in heaven. Right. I did all the rules. You've got to let me in now. <laughs> You're not doing. That's not why we want to follow God's rules. Right. We do it as a way of showing God that right. we're returning the love he's already shown us. Yes. The real danger of the people who follow the rules is that they think they're in control. They think they can control God. Right. And that's violating one of the biggest rules. Right. And it's, you know, it, 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 it cuts two ways, of course, because sometimes, you know, I, I mean, your story is a, is a great example. You know, I'm worried about obedience. I don't know if I could be obedient. And then you discover obedience is here. Do the thing that you've always loved the most. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and the other side of it was that. I didn't realize it. I actually, it was actually hard for me because I'd had my heart set on teaching in a small college. Uh, little did I know that I'd get to do this instead, and it would be so wonderful. Yeah. C.S. Lewis uh, gives a story. He gives an illustration sometimes. He says, he says, you know, we, we, he says, we're, we, we think far too small. We are, we are children, uh, you know, playing with mud in an alley. Because we think that that's the best it's going to get, you know, and God wants to take us to the beach and show us the ocean. And, you know, and yeah. uh, uh, and that's that's one of the things that the, the sciences uh, do for us is they show they, us they force the, the magnitude yeah. of the world that we live in. One of the uh, things about going outside at night and looking at the stars is it reveals to you a universe that's so big that it doesn't matter you know, whether your girlfriend is happy with you or mad at you. It doesn't matter if you had a good meal today or not. It doesn't matter if your friend or your enemy was the president. 
all of those things pale by comparison. I really had that sense in 9-11, which of course was this marvelous thing, the horrible thing that shook people up so badly. I was in Rome at the time. I was at a science meeting and, you know, shaken like any American would be, especially being away from home. Right. And then it, and then it hit me. Um, we actually had Deva Sobel come and speaking at this meeting. And she talked about the history of astronomy and the history of Galileo. Mm-hmm. And we're surrounded by Roman history. And you realize the things that last are not the names of the generals or the names of the, the people involved in tragedies or the millionaires. We all know that Galileo you know, had a, a, a tiff with the Pope. How many people remember the name of the Pope? Right. <laughs> Most of us forget that when Galileo was put on trial, it was at the climax of the 30 years war. How many people even remember that the 30, I mean, how many people can tell you how long did the 30 years war last? Right. It was, <laughs> and much less, who were the people involved? It was, yeah, it was a terrible war. It lasted 30 years. It was like a world war that just wouldn't end. Mm-hmm. And it's totally forgotten where Galileo is remembered. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, let me ask you something, because this is, I, I saw, I, I remember seeing an article uh, at the time. A couple of years ago, the Vatican uh, held some kind of conference, speaking of historical events that are already being forgotten. Um, they held a conference basically just kind of uh, digging, speaking of speculation, this is this is a classic example of theological speculation. Uh, the church encourages us to just say, you know, sure. Use your imagination. Think about some big question that is radically impractical, but is really cool to think about. And uh, had a conference basically kind of dinking around with the idea of extra treks throughout life. Yep. Uh, and this was this was uh, I think about the time that you, you were you were making your remarks on baptizing aliens and so forth. It was about uh, the, well. It was for the year of astronomy. It was 400 years after Galileo and his telescope. Uh-huh. And so, uh, which was, you know, 16, uh, 16, was the year of astronomy and this was 29. Okay. And the meeting was to bring together the scientists. So we were talking about, um, the science that the biologists do with the science that the astronomers do with the science that the planetary people do. And everybody has been doing their science, but they don't often get a place where they can all talk with each other about it. Right. Now, everybody thought that we were, you know, holding a meeting to try to decide whether or not to baptize the aliens. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but the, the world is always going to think that. Uh, the, right. the three questions I always get is, you know, are, are you there to look for aliens to baptize? No. Are you right. casting the horoscope for the Pope? No. <laughs> you know, and, and, <clears throat> well, why not? <laughs> uh, and and are, aren't you the guys that set the date of Easter? Well, no, not that either. That that that's been solved. Thank you. Right. <laughs> But uh, but it was. There's a like great a phone place. app for that now, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and which which was kind of why it was invented. The interesting thing is the Christian calendar is not actually based on where the moon is, but it's a formula that imitates eh, 16 years out of 17 where the moon was. But you know, if the moon went away, we'd still be able to calculate when Easter was, because you know our religious holidays are not controlled by the planets. The Sabbath wasn't made for man. I mean, the man was not the the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay, That's the phrase I want to use, right? Right. And we want to worship God in a way that we all agree on, 
but it's like agreeing on what's the hymn that we're going to sing. And it's not that one hymn is right and the other is wrong, though the you know the, the, the liturgists might argue in in a moral sense. It's just we all want to be sure we're we're singing on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it's it. Those are that's the 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 those kinds of speculations mm-hmm. uh, about you know our place in the universe because that's what we're that's what people are really asking is yeah. you know uh w- when they're asking questions like are we alone um mm-hmm. that is a that is a profoundly theological question right and um, and people will say that you know modern science has shown us the universe is so big and we're so tiny how can god possibly know and that's why science is scary because it makes us ask this question right if you think that can i refer you to psalm 8 <laughs> which makes exactly the same point right and with the with the you know the cosmology of 2500 years ago right and and that's one of the things that you run into is is people who who say things like you know well now that we know that the universe is huge uh human beings We've always known and yeah. we and it's like we've always known that all you got to do is just go outside. <laughs> and if you live in a desert culture, you know, where you step outside, you're really going to see that. You know, just right. step outside and look up, Abraham. Can you mm-hmm. count the stars? You know, this is not a this is not news to Abraham that the universe it's, is really big and he's really insignificant. It's what's fascinating. Uh, this was an insight I got from one of my fellow Jesuit astronomers here who pointed out the difference uh, before the Renaissance, everybody believed that the world was getting worse and worse, that there was a golden age in the past, whether it's you know the story of Eden in Genesis or the story of Atlantis that you'll find in Plato, that there was a golden age and things are getting worse and will never be as good as they were back then. Well, the Renaissance and Galileo and a few other people saw things that weren't in old books. The new mythology is that everybody in the past was an idiot. And, you know, with with modern technology, I'm so much superior to the people before me. Right. Well, it's equally foolish. Right. And that that idea that it's called Whiggism, I'm told, Uh you know, comes from, again, the 19th century. Right. Science is going to solve all of our problems. We've got electricity. We've got steam engines. Who needs morality anymore? Right. Uh, Well, yeah. If that's the case, then who are the most technologically advanced people of the 20th, early 20th century? Probably the people in Germany who also fell into the evils of fascism. Right. Yeah. And that way of looking at things, of assuming, you know, one of the things that Chesterton, one of my favorite writers, you know, remarked, uh, he said, the world doesn't progress. He said, the world wobbles. (laughs) <laughs> and that's really true, you know, that there really there are places where it's like a rocking chair. I mean, we rush forward and, you know, wow, you know, look what we're able to do. We're able, for example, now, you know, I'm able to do something with my computer and you're able to do something with your computer that an entire nation state could not have achieved 70 years ago. Uh, you know, I could sit I here and have done what I was at MIT 40 years ago. You know. Right. Yeah. So we're able to sit here uh, because we've invented the Internet and, and we've made cheap computers so that I can sit here and talk to you and record this. And, you know, uh, in a few days, uh, 
uh, an unlimited number of people can sit here and listen to our conversation also over the web. That was something that, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt could not have dreamed of doing uh, without this marshalling, you know, this, this uh, Enormous effort, yeah. massive, you know, national effort to do something like that. And we're able to do that. On the other hand, you know, we're still facing, you and I are still facing uh, the kinds of moral problems that tr trouble the conscience of and there's uh, a Abraham or David or Peter or, you know, yeah. Right. And, and, and this was brought out by Pope Benedict in uh, Swiss Salvi in one of his encyclicals. Technology accumulates. I don't have to know how a light bulb works in order to walk into the room, flip the switch, and I've got light. Right. Because the guys 50 years ago and 100 years ago who worked that out, it's still there. Right. But in the same way, I cannot rely on the ethical decisions of Socrates to make my choices for me. Ethics and ethical choices have to start anew with each situation, with each person. There isn't a calculus of ethics. There's right. no way that we can manufacture it. Yeah. And, and if there were, we wouldn't be free. This is an essential part of human freedom and human dignity. Right. Yeah, one of the paradoxes of that uh, is, is, for me, that I, that I've thought about is, is, uh, for example, the the, uh, the the problem of a of a kind of libertarian approach to life that I can be my own man and I don't need anybody else. Well. That's all well and good, but you know the reason you're able to say that and announce it to the world over the internet is because you're relying on a massive, you know, <laughs> yeah, huge human effort that you're just that you're just tapping into, pretending you're doing all this on your own. Uh, but the I, reason I, I, you know, that you're able to do it is because the human race has laid down so much for you. I'm reminded of the button I saw a kid wearing when I was in high school back in the 60s, question authority. And they said, question authority says who? <laughs> yes. You know, I'm going to be a libertarian in my own person. How come? Because I read it in a book. Yes. Where do you think the book came from? Who taught exactly. you to read? I saw, yeah, I saw a piece of graffiti one time that said, uh, it was something like that, question authority. And somebody, somebody wrote, spray painted underneath it saying, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I thought that was good. That that and another billboard that I saw one time uh, that really cracked me up. It was it was something like the American Heart Association had put up, and the point of the billboard was, uh, you know, men uh, don't go get their checkups, and so they die of heart attacks because they refuse to go get a checkup. Mm -hmm. And so the the billboard, the billboard said, you know, uh, five thousand men are going to die of stubbornness next year. And somebody spray painted underneath and said, no, we won't. <laughs> yep. Uh, I thought that was so great. Uh, anyway, as we've been doing this for an hour and been having a great time, I've got stuff. I, got I understand. I understand. Thank you so much well, for could, being on the show. I could do today. this for another hour. This has been a whole lot of fun. Well, you know, maybe we can have you back at some at some point in the future. That would be great. All right. All right. I want to thank you so much. You've been listening to Connecting the Dots. Our uh, our guest today was uh, Brother Guy Consolmagno, the director of the Vatican Observatory. Do you have any books in print? 
I do. Uh, a lot of the stuff comes up in a book called Would You Baptize an Extraterrestrial? And all the other questions we get from the Vatican Observatory. So Fantastic. You know, it, it talks about uh, the Big Bang. It talks about Galileo. even talks about Pluto. Great. All right. Well, uh, you can find that at, at uh, Amazon. Would you baptize an extraterrestrial? And uh, we will uh, we'll be back again soon with uh, another guest. But I want to thank you so much today for being on the show, Brother Guy Consolmagno. You've been listening to Connecting the Dots with Mark Shea. So long and happy lands.